All right, one of my favorite Christmas stories is A Christmas Carol. It's written by Charles Dickens. I've never read the book, uh, but it's been made into like 50 movie adaptations, right? And I've seen, I don't know, two or three of them, and it's one of my favorite Christmas stories, right? You probably know it. You've probably seen the Muppets version, okay? That's probably the purest version and the best version. Is the, Yeah, I mean, puppets make everything better. And so, um, and so... Anyways, the Christmas, uh, A Christmas Carol is a story about this guy Scrooge who's really selfish, really rich, really greedy, and doesn't care about anybody but himself. And in the midst of this story, four ghosts visit him. And these four ghosts are trying to get him to change, trying to get him to see the error of his selfish and greedy ways. And I love it because it's not very often at Christmas that you get to hear ghost stories, okay? And so I love the Christmas Carol also because what ends up happening to Scrooge, spoiler alert, it's a 200-year-old spoiler alert, but uh, what ends up happening to Scrooge is he changes, he, he, he changes. He turns from his ways of selfishness and greed and, and pride and, and whatever else, and he turns and decides to be generous. He decides to not be selfish with his money anymore. And, and I love this story, and as I did some research on this story, what I found was that, there, that Charles Dickens, prob, Dickens was probably trying to uh, have some of these Christian themes of redemption and forgiveness and, and caring for the poor in, in this story, like that, this is part of why he wrote. Now, this is a little bit debated between historians because uh, there's some valid reasons to scrutinize Charles Dickens for a few things and for his faith, but he really cared about people actually living like Jesus. And he wanted to write a story that people could read at Christmas time and it would push them into seeing the poor and caring for the poor, and in particular, seeing in his day in England the, the children that were poor among them. And so he wanted to write this Christmas story to, to shape the hearts of the people. And so why do I bring up a Christmas car- or a Christmas carol, that story, today? It brings me to week three of our series. We're, we've been in this series the vices and virtues of Christmas, where we're looking at the vices of Christmas that rear their head, and especially these are vices that are are around money. We're looking at how money entices us and does things to our hearts in all sorts of ways. We looked at how we, we fall into loving money. We look into how we fall into greed. We look into how we fall into coveting and consumerism and materialism. Money around Christmas time can be a vice that does all sorts of things in our hearts. And so we've been looking at these different vices. And then we've been contrasting those with the virtues that Christ would call us to, remembering 2 Peter 1.5 that says, supplement our faith with virtue, with goodliness, with godliness, with righteousness. And so we've been looking at these virtues that contrast these vices that rule our hearts and reign over our hearts very often. And today, the reason I bring up a Christmas carol is the vice that we're going to be talking about is apathy towards the poor. We're going to be looking at apathy towards the poor, and the virtue that we're going to be looking at is eyes that see the poor, and even hands that care for the poor. And and the reason that I, I want to talk about these things today is because the Advent story itself has this thread 
of God seeing the poor and identifying with the poor and coming to bring good news to the poor. And I don't want us to miss that in the Advent story today. So this sermon, it might feel a little bit weird to preach right before Christmas or as an Advent story. Um, You could just chalk it up to, I'm too influenced by a Christmas carol. Or you could look at at it as a way to see a thread of the Christmas story that can be easy for us to ignore very often. Okay, so this is what we're going to do today. First, we're going to look at this thread of God seeing and identifying with the poor in the Advent story, the arrival of God story, the Christmas story. And then we're going to look at this vice of apathy towards the poor and examine our hearts and see if we have that apathy apathy in us. And then we're going to look at this virtue or the virtues of eyes that see the poor and hands that care for the poor. All right, so that's where we're going today, all right? So let's start by looking at how God sees the poor and identifies with the poor. Let's reread 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and I say reread because we read it last week. Look at how Paul, the apostle, defines grace in this instance. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus had everything in heaven. And the Advent story is the story of Jesus who had everything in heaven, allowing himself to be stripped of everything in order to reach us. The Advent story is the story of the Son of God who had the riches of heaven, the riches of the universe at his fingertips, deciding to strip himself of those riches and come to earth like a baby, as a baby. The Advent story has this idea, this thread in it that God sees the poor and identifies with the poor. And one of the ways we see that displayed is in some sense, the Son of God stripped himself of his power in in some strange sense. This is what Paul is talking about in Corinthians 8, 9. He's not saying, you know, Jesus had all this Bitcoin in heaven and then he sold it and came to earth. He's not saying that. He's saying there was some aspect to the riches of what Jesus had in heaven that he let go of in order to reach us. He became poor so we could become rich. Not in a literal sense, but maybe literal in the fact that the resurrection, when we all resurrect and we get to live with God forever, that will be far richer than any of us could ever be on this earth. Jesus impoverished himself in order to reach us, in order to care for us. This is the first way we see in the Advent story that God sees the poor and identifies with the poor. There's a second thread, or a second way, really, that we see that that God sees the poor and identifies with the poor, and it's this. It's that the Holy Spirit put Jesus into a poor family. The Holy Spirit put Jesus into a poor family. Let me read two passages to prove it. One's going to be from the Old Testament, one from the New. Here's Leviticus 12, 
And in verse 8, which is where I want us to hone in on, uh, what I want you to realize is that this verse 8 is said at least four different times throughout Leviticus. So this was a well-known law for the people of God. But let's read Leviticus 12, 6 through 8. It says this, And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Okay, now read with me from Luke 2. Gretchen read it earlier. Verse 22 through 24. This is Jesus' first trip to the temple for this purification. And when the time for their purification, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it's written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple to go through this purification that Leviticus, the law of God, called for, this sacrifice, and it's two turtle doves or two young pigeons. So one, first, I know a bunch of you are just going, oh, that's where it comes from in the song. Get past that. Okay, that's, that's where it comes from, all right? But two, notice in Leviticus, the ideal sacrifice is a lamb. That's what God wants everybody to be doing. He wanted them to give a sacrifice of a lamb. But he says, hey, I know in certain instances people can't afford a lamb. In those instances, two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And Luke doesn't even mention the lamb, which means that Mary and Joseph couldn't afford the lamb, and they had to give a sacrifice of two turtle doves or two young pigeons. That means the Holy Spirit put Jesus into a poor family. This is how we know that God sees the poor and identifies with the poor. He literally makes it part of his human identity that he's poor. The sacrifice for the Son of God, Emmanuel, God in the flesh, Jesus, which means salvation. Mary knew these names for Jesus. The, the sacrifice that was made for him was not a lamb. It was two turtle doves. He was put into a poor family. Now listen, if I'm God, and my mission as God is to send my kid to save the world and redeem the world and take care of the world, I'm going to put that kid in the richest family with the nicest parents and the most powerful parents. I'm going to give them a leg up. That's not what God does in the Advent story. He puts his son into a poor family. A family that can't even afford the right sort of sacrifice, or not really the right sort of sacrifice, but the ideal sort of sacrifice for the Son of God, the salvation of the world. 
God sees the poor and he identifies with the poor and we see it in the Advent story. Jesus chose to grow up in a poor family. Jesus purposely, and the Holy Spirit, or however that works in the Trinity, purposely made it part of his human identity to grow up in a poor family. We have to wrestle with that in the Advent story. We have to see that, really, in the Advent story, because God is absolutely identifying with the poor of this world by putting his son in a poor family. And he grows up in in a poor hometown as well. So in the Advent story so far, this thread of God seeing the poor and identifying with the poor, what we've seen so far is that God strips himself of his power in some sense, but then he also puts himself in to actual poverty in a literal sense. But I also think the Advent story should remind us that we have a God who's come on a mission, and that part of that mission is a mission that sees the poor and identifies with the poor. Look at Luke chapter 4, 16 through 21. Now, this is how Luke goes. The first couple of chapters, all about Jesus' birth, all about God in the flesh coming to earth, arriving, adventing. Uh, Luke chapter 3, the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus, right? His ministry hasn't really even started yet. This is how Luke tells the story. Uh, But Luke chapter 4, Luke writes this account of how Jesus starts his ministry. This might not be even exactly how Jesus started his ministry, but it was certainly one of the first things that Jesus did in starting his ministry, and it was certainly what Luke wanted to highlight about how Jesus starts his ministry. So look at Luke chapter 4, 16 through 21, we'll read. It says this, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, as was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. As out of place as it might seem for us to talk about caring for the poor around Advent, we have to realize that at least the way Luke wanted to tell the story of the start of Jesus' ministry was in Jesus proclaiming the sort of work that he was going to do, the sort of good news that he was going to bring. And one of the places that Jesus wants to bring that good news is to the poor. And Jesus means both literally and metaphorically. In one sense, we are all impoverished before God in this broken world. But I think we'd be silly to say that's the only meaning here. When Isaiah 61, when Isaiah the prophet wrote that in chapter 61 of the book of Isaiah, the people, as they read it, they read it as God is literally going to come and he's literally going to bring good news to the literal poor. 
And Jesus gets up in his ministry and he says, that's me. I'm that guy. I'm that guy to bring good news to the poor. And so I think the arrival of Jesus to earth, the advent of Jesus to earth, should remind us that part of God's very mission on this earth is to care for the poor. God sees the poor and he identifies with the poor throughout the Advent story. First in how he strips himself of power and comes in humility. Then in how he literally puts himself into a poor family. And then we see that God's mission, part of it at least, is to proclaim good news to the poor. We can't avoid it. It's a thread in the Advent story. You'll even see it in, in Christmas songs, but we usually ignore it. And we usually ignore it because there's a vice that we have to deal with in our hearts. There's this vice. And the vice that I want us to talk about today, I've already mentioned, is the vice of apathy towards the poor. It's probably, we probably don't think of, of apathy towards the poor as a vice, but I really actually think it is a vice because I think it ensnares our hearts and it begins to rule us and it begins to cause how we live in this world. Apathy, if you don't know what apathy is, it's, it's just not caring about or not seeing. And so I think a vice in our culture is we have apathy towards the poor. We don't care about the poor. Or we choose not to see the poor. Or we choose to ignore the poor. And I think we got to deal with this vice in us. I think we got to go, hey, do I have apathy towards the poor? Because Jesus in the Advent story certainly does not. Do we as a church have apathy towards the poor? Jesus came to earth seeing and identifying with the poor and wanting to declare good news to the poor. But most of us don't give very much thought to the poor. Or if we do, we blame them for their poorness, which there might be some partial truths in there. Or if we do think of them, it's once a month and we feel really guilty and then we try to give some money away to make those guilty feelings go away. But I would, I would wager that most of us in the room aren't really even dealing with those emotions as much as we're just dealing with the emotion of apathy towards the poor. They're just not on our minds very much. The apathy has gotten a hold of our hearts and it rules over us. It whispers things to us. And some of those things are true and some of those things are false. Like apathy towards the poor, it's easier. It's, uh, you'll, you will have a happier life if you have apathy towards the poor. You will. You will feel better about your life if you have apathy towards the poor. Caring for the poor is overwhelming. It is absolutely overwhelming. And then what's more is, I don't know if you've noticed this in your own heart, at times when you care for the poor, you're doing it in a way that some might call paternalistic, which is kind of like this savior complex, like I can save you and you have this egocentricity inside of you and you care for the poor just to boost up your own ego. Well, apathy says, hey, you won't deal with that. If you choose just to be apathetic, you won't have to deal with that evil part of your heart. 
Apathy is easier because caring for the poor, it, it increases sadness. Right? It just increases sadness. You begin to see things happening in this world you did not know were happening or in people's lives that you did not know were happening. And, and, and it, it just increases your sadness in all sorts of ways. Apathy, apathy helps us to forget that sadness at other people's distress. I bet, I, w- I would even bet apathy is doing something to a couple people in here at least. I bet some of you right now, you're bristling. You're a little angry at some of the things I, I'm saying. Why on Christmas? Why are you talking about this? You're not talking about this right. You're not explaining this nuance. I, I would wager that your apathy is coming out in in a defense mechanism of anger to protect your heart's apathy so that your heart can continue in its apathy. That that anger, I, w- I would just ask you to pray through, is an anger that's trying to protect your heart by allowing yourself to be apathetic so you don't have to deal with the sadness and you don't have to deal with the overwhelming nature of what it means to care for the poor and see the poor. Apathy is easier. Apathy makes for a happier life. Apathy can even protect us from our own sinful hearts. Apathy can protect us from the sadness that we'll see. And it absolutely rules us at times. But that's not where Jesus would lead us. He wouldn't have a stay in apathy. He would lead us into a virtue. A virtue that has eyes that see the poor, which doesn't sound like a virtue, but in Jesus' day, it was called a healthy eye. Read Matthew 6, 19 through 24 with me, and let's look at this virtue that Jesus wants us to press into. Verse 19 of Matthew 6 says this. This is Jesus teaching in one of his most famous sermons. He says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We'll stop there. So Jesus gets up. He's teaching on all sorts of topics. And then he gets to the section where he begins to teach people about money. And then lamps and eyes and lights. And then money again. To which I I kind of, you know, the the public speaker in me wants to send Jesus to a public speaking class and say, hey, you got to stay on point. You can't talk about money and then lamps and eye health like you, like that. I'm sure that's important. I have glasses. I love them. But Jesus, you got to just stay on point here. And we'd think that reading this passage until we realize this idea of having a healthy eye. This, This was actually a saying of the day. It was an idiom of the day. That if someone had a healthy eye, it was someone that had lived with great intentionality in, life, in their lives, but 
So great was the intentionality in their life that they cared for the poor, that they saw the poor. That's why Jesus throws this phrase in these verses about eyes and lamps and health of eyes in the middle of this talk about money. Because Jesus is absolutely inviting us into a virtue. A virtue of eyes that see the poor and hands that care for the poor. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. So as much as we're bristling at maybe some of the things I'm saying today, I would just wager you would probably bristle at Jesus' teachings too. Because as he talked about money and our idols around money, he also invited his disciples into a virtue. Eyes that see the poor, a healthy eye. People that care for the poor. That's what Jesus invites us into. So my question for us, church, is this. Do you see the poor? Do you see the poor? Is your eye healthy? Or is it only healthy once a month when you see a depressing commercial? Here, here's a good test. Here's a good test for you if you have eyes that see the poor. Do you have friends that are poor? I think this is definitely one way to know if you see the poor or not. That there are people who are poor and outside of your socioeconomic class that you're friends with. Not just acquaintances, not just go to the same small group, but friends with. Like, are, are there poor people that would say, you see them as an equal? Are there people who are poor that would point to you and say, hey, that person sees me and knows me? If not, why not? Could it be that the vice of apathy has so gripped our hearts that it's taught us all sorts of things and whispered all sorts of things to us like, hey, man, you got to worry about yourself. You can't, hey, you, gotta, you can't make much of a difference anyways. You don't know how to help even if you wanted to. Or maybe even it's gotten so insidious that it's even said, listen, the way you should think about people is they shouldn't mix in socioeconomic classes. That just shouldn't happen. It leads to all sorts of problems. It's not good for society. Maybe apathy has even whispered that to you. Apathy might even say, the poverty of this world, it's impossible to deal with it. It's impossible to deal with it. Jesus said, uh, the poor will always be with you. Like, why fight against it? The advent of the Son of God says he came to deal with the impossible. He came to deal with these things that seem like we can't do anything to stop them or anything to fix them. You and I need healthy eyes that see, see the poor and care for the poor. In Flagstaff, if you do Google searches on this stuff, uh, it says our population is 72,000 people. I, I think it's probably more because of how bad traffic is um, on the four roads that we have. Uh, but let's say it's 72,000. It says there's 72,000 people that live in Flagstaff. Probably doesn't include students. Uh, but, the, but then when you say, hey, how many people are living below the poverty line in Flagstaff? 
what the data says is 10,000 people. 10,000 people in Flagstaff live below the poverty line. So if you don't know what the poverty line is, for an individual, the federal government has said, if you make less than $12,880 a year, you are in poverty. For a family of four, they have numbers for all the situations, but for a family of four, it's, uh, they would have to make less than $26,500. So there's 10,000 people in this city, and I don't think that includes students at all, living in poverty. One in seven. That's like 14% of our population lives in poverty. Does even 14% of our church live below the poverty line? I don't know. I ask because I think we can go, rah, rah, yeah, that's right, Anthony, say that. And then are we going to actually live that? Are we actually going to have eyes that see the poor and hands that care for the poor? Are they part of our community? I would wager that 14% of this congregation does not live below the poverty line. Because it's easier and more normal for us to have relationships with people in similar economic classes as us. That's not what Jesus did. He was rich and he decided to live with the poor. He decided to become poor. So, friends, what I, what I want is for us as the church to repent from this vice of apathy that I think has definitely gripped our hearts and has caused us to forget the poor and be consumed with our own riches. And I want us to press into this virtue of having a healthy eye that sees the poor and cares for the poor. Something a reverend uh, named Ben Kramer got me thinking, and, and essentially he asks in a more intense way. He says, Christians, like, what is our reputation among the poor? What's our reputation among them? And I want to take Christians out of it. Redemption Flagstaff, what is our reputation among the poor? Of, Of our group of people here that interact with those 10,000 in some way, what is our reputation among that 10,000? What is, what, what is our reputation among them? Do we have one even? What would they think of us? Would they describe us as people that see them and care for them and love them? Would, would they say that? I don't, I don't know if they would, but may they, may they say that about us as we press into this virtue of eyes that see the poor. What if, what if by next Christmas, each one of our redemption communities or each one of the households in here had someone at Christmas dinner that lived below the poverty line there at Christmas dinner as a friend, as someone who's loved, as someone who's seen? What if that's what happened? Now listen, that's not the mark of if we see the poor and are caring for the poor. It might just be the mark of like, I felt really convicted by that one thing Anthony said. But I'm just trying to give us a creative vision here. I'm trying to go, hey, what would this mean? What could we do? What are the steps that would have to happen in order for us to feel good about someone below the poverty line being at Christmas dinner with us? What would that take? 
I think it would take a healthy eye. I think in our culture around Christmas time, it's way too easy for us to think of me and mine. But what if we, as God's people, became known for bringing good news to the poor? And part of the way that we did that was inviting them into our community as equals and as contributors to this community. Like a lot of times we'll think about caring for the poor, but we think about them in a paternalistic way, like I'm better than them, they need me. What if we need the poor church? Not what if, we do need the poor church. That's what scripture declares. It's hard to get around that idea. We, we need eyes that see the poor. We need to step into their life. We need to bring them into our life. We need to see them as equals and contributors to our community. We're not going to do this perfectly, guys. We're, we're not. But I would just encourage us, let's start to take some baby steps. This can feel overwhelming, everything I'm saying. But let's just take some baby steps. Let's choose to do some things that we will actually do. Right? Maybe the baby steps for you is get involved with Second Saturdays, or redemption, foster care and adoption stuff, or uh, even some of the stuff O'Kim's doing at the Flagstaff Family Food Center. Maybe these are the baby steps for us. Maybe there's more. Invite the people that you're in community with into this with you. I found that when we're caring for people below the poverty line that have a lot of issues because of that, it's a lot easier when it's done in community. When I try to do it by myself like some kind of superhero, I fail and I cry and I fail. But when I do it in community, I've seen some beautiful things happen. Take some baby steps. Maybe the baby step for you is talking to the people in your RC and going, hey, what if we did this? What would this look like? Who can we invite into our community? And what Jesus promises us as we step into this, if you read Matthew 25, Jesus makes this huge call for Christians to tangibly care for the poor. And all sorts of groups, but I would argue that each of those groups had, there was some level of poverty in mind. And Jesus says, when you care for these groups, when you care for these people, he says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. So church, if we step into this, It will be painful. We will fail. It won't be fun at times. But we'll get to know Jesus. We'll get to know him more. It will be like we are serving him. Jesus could have said a lot of things like, whatever you do for this, you do for me. He looks at the impoverished in his world and he says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. If we step into this church, you will get to know Jesus. A lot of times as a pastor, I'm talking to people and they're going, how do I get to know Jesus? And there's all sorts of very important ways that we get to know him through prayer, scripture, all this stuff. But very seldomly do we say, hey, what if you begin to care for poor people? What if that's a way to get to know Jesus? Jesus seems to think so. Jesus seems to say so. What if that became us? What if we as a church became became known for having a healthy eye? I think if we did, we would actually get to know Jesus in a new way. So let the Advent story this year increase the health of our eyes. Let it wake us up out of our apathetic slumber. 
Because Jesus stripped himself of his riches to identify with the poor and proclaim good news to the poor. Will we do the same? We can. We can. He died so we could have his righteousness. He resurrected so we could have his riches. He sent his spirit to live in us so we could have healthy eyes. Listen, loving the poor and caring for the poor, it, it will feel impossible and it will be so uh, overwhelming at times and we'll want to give up and we'll want to be drawn right back into apathy. Even as I was writing these sermon notes, as I got to this point in the sermon, I had this overwhelming feeling. Like, don't even preach this, Anthony. Don't talk about this. And the, the feeling was coming from how much I was seeing that I myself am a hypocrite when it comes to this stuff. I'm a hypocrite. And I don't want to preach a message where I would be a hypocrite. But as I prayed through that, I felt like God was kind of saying, but this is what I, I'm saying. This is what I'm inviting Redemption Flagstaff into. Abandoning the vice of apathy and stepping into a virtue of eyes that see, for the, see the poor and hands that care for the poor. This is what God is inviting us into. And I could read a hundred more verses throughout the Bible that say this. It's not just the ones I read. It's all throughout Scripture. Because God himself does that. And part of our lives as Christians is to image him and respond to that goodness to us. That goodness of him coming to us, all impoverished people in some sense. Let's be a church that repents from our hypocrisy, that repents from our apathy. And let's begin to serve Jesus by living out the Advent story ourselves. I think if we do that, apathy won't grip our hearts so tightly. But Jesus will. And Jesus will give us healthy eyes. May we be that people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you that you put yourself into poverty to save us. God, thank you that you forsaked your riches in order to give us your riches. God, help us. It is much easier in our culture to have apathy towards the poor. God, I don't know exactly what you want to lead us into, but I do know you care for the poor, you see the poor, and many of us do not. Help us to get better at seeing them. Help us to get better at serving them. Help us to get better at loving them. Help us to get better at seeing them as equals and contributors to this body. God, for those of us in, that are overwhelmed right now or guilt-ridden, one, forgive me if, if I spoke uh, too harshly to your people. But two, would you meet our guilt and feelings of overwhelmed with your spirit? Would you lead us into a healthy conviction that leads us into healthy, God-centered, gospel-centered action? And may we have a spark that lights a small fire today in us that steps more deeply into caring for the poor.
and seeing the poor and loving the poor. Because I know that's part of how you want to proclaim the good news. God, help us to be that people. Remove the apathy within us. Help us to care. Help us to be okay with caring and feeling the pain of that. Holy Spirit, draw close to us as I ask for you to do these audacious things in us. Comfort us. We love you, Lord, and we need you. Amen.